Hey, it's Pastor Colin again at Aletheia Bible Fellowship. This is week three of four in our friendship series here this month. We'll be talking about trust and how we can have biblically founded trust in our relationships with our friends, brothers and sisters in Christ in the body and how we can act on that to build a hopeful and enduring, indeed eternal relationship based on trust in God and then following with real substantial trust in our brothers and sisters. So check it out. If you find it helpful, like it and share it with your friends and family that would also find it helpful. Okay, welcome to week three of Friendship Month here at Solidarity Year at ABF. If I may remind you and call your attention to the big picture of this arc here, vigilance and all these things, sacrifice, discernment, solidarity is where we're at. Still got a couple more years loaded up in the clip, ready to fire off. And yeah, so we're going to continue that. All these things are meant to be um, a continuous arc, a continuous um, pursuit with continuity, right? That's how our God works, is nothing's disjointed. Nothing that you see in the New Testament um, overwrites and deletes anything in the old. Any sign of a, of a prophet currently must meet with all signs of previous um, established prophetic writings uh, that God has given. And so I want to do the same kind of thing with this month. Um, last week in our cell groups, we were discussing different things, and one of the things that came up is this idea of reciprocating, right? We talked about gestures of love and language of communication and connection, um, you know, initial efforts at solidarity within the body. The suggestion was made that it's really a key factor that we need to work on reciprocating when another person actually does that and makes a move to communicate their love for us. I thought that was um, a very important point that needed to get back in here. <clears throat> whether that's whether that initial hug or whether that initial move was like a hug or an invitation to hang out, um, a real question for conversation. You know, somebody trying to like they didn't have all the all the picture together. They didn't have a plan from A to Z that you can just fit neatly into. But somebody just takes a step forward in that. You know, how are we reciprocating these things? In romantic relationship, as I think we talked about in one of my previous sermon months this year, um, neglecting to respond when the other person makes a bid for connection, like in a marriage relationship, that's damaging to the relationship. And it's true even of simple things like when one spouse says, wow, you know, as you're driving by, that's a beautiful house over there. And the other spouse responds with, Hmm. Or nothing at all. You know? It's like, that's such a small thing, but it's sad and it makes an emotional impact on us. And typically you can see people cope with things like that because it hurts. Like, just like anything, you know, when you hit your leg on something, you're like, ah, you know? Like, man, that hurts. You respond to that stimuli. And the same thing goes. Like, when we get shut down in that way, Um, emotionally by somebody that we're trying to connect with, 
you see things. You see the fruit of that. And somebody will, you know, like, distract and pretend like they're actually looking at something else or all of a sudden their head will start to itch or something silly, you know? But it's like we as people are meant to do that. We're made in the image of a triune God, an eternal relationship. We are in that image too. And so we need to reciprocate one another. And when we don't, it breeds bitterness, breeds resentment, breeds division, not solidarity. Imagine how true that is now for intentful moves of bold, vulnerable communication, not something as stupid as, wow, that's a nice house, or, you know, I was just thinking, like, I think I have a new favorite color now, <laughs> or something, something small. Um, but things that are actually significant. And that's what we're pushing for here at the body at ABF, is to make more connections of significance, of vulnerability, of sharing our lives with one another. So yeah, what about what we do with that? Um, making vulnerable connections. Make, like saying, hey, let's find a time next week to hang out. I really want to hang out with you. You know? Um, or telling somebody that you love them and appreciate them or whatever uh, and you don't get any real response to that. Or if you're asking like um, a real question, you know, instead of coming up to somebody and giving them a hug, some of us we discussed, like our language is connecting with people with substantial communication. Like instead of coming up and being like, hey, you know, what's up, dude? Or whatever, being like, hey, how was your week last week? I remember you had this test. You know, how was that? And then the other person being like, fine. It's like, hmm, that was kind of lame. That was kind of a lame response. How do we respond to these things? <clears throat> I was sort of reflecting on different examples, and one of the things that I had thought about was an interaction that Louie and I had several weeks ago um, at the hospital. And I went in to see Steve, and after I got done, I think I came down and, like, I was on my way out, but Louie was in the lobby, and we talked for a minute, and when we were done, I gave him a hug, and I said, I love you. I didn't really think about it. And I knew it would be a little bit awkward, because that's just what it is. It was even like, he was sitting down, I was getting up, you know, you have the sitting down and standing up hug thing. Like, it was just, it was just what it was, but what are you going to do, right? Like, do you say, hey, stand up so I can give you a hug. You can do that, but it's just, you got to roll with it, right? So, we did. We rolled with that. Um, and I knew it would be a bit awkward, but I didn't really think a whole lot of it, because it felt like the right thing to express, just authentically. And I don't think Louis said anything at first, and I don't remember, like, I didn't register that in my mind. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't, like, sad about it or whatever. I just didn't really register it. And when I let go and started to walk off, uh, Louis said, I love you back, you know? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, huh, I completely didn't think about this new boyfriend-girlfriend scenario that I just, <laughs> that I just set into place, that I just put Louis in. That is so funny. <laughs> But 
I want to commend Louis. I appreciated that. Like in retrospect, as I'm processing it and walking away, could he have just let it go? Yeah, totally. Like I was just rolling with it. I was on my way out, you know, because I, I wasn't even really thinking about it. I'm sure I didn't give off any real social cues like, oh, I'm really sad that he didn't say I love you back or, or whatever. Um, could he have just said thank you? Yeah, I mean, that's a weird one if you're like boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, and, and, or husband, wife, or whatever, and one person says thank you, and the other person, or one person says I love you, and the other person says thank you. That's weird. But in this situation, it wouldn't have been that weird because it was like, you know, they're specifically for support. Like, this is a common communication. Like, hey, you know, we're looking out for your interests, like, um, thinking about you, love you, care for you, all this stuff, and thank you is an appropriate response to that body of communication, right? That would totally be fine. Um, but he chose to reciprocate a personal and intimate move towards solidarity in that way. And I appreciated that. Why is I love you so scary? You know, why is I love you so scary for boyfriend and girlfriend relationships? Well, it's a statement of commitment, right? It's a vulnerable statement of commitment toward a new depth and duration of relationship. It's a vulnerable gesture. It requires trust, right? Because what if you're not on the same page? You're sort of testing the waters, you know? What if you're not on the same page about that? What if you get a thank you? And you're not on the same page of how serious your, your relationship is. That's going to be real embarrassing and probably hurtful on some level. But Louis processed our situation for a moment, and he reciprocated my communication of love, and he committed in solidarity. There was a, a real trust and commitment and relationship at that moment, a moment that built up the body of Christ, because we're looking at the big picture here, right? A moment that built up the body of Christ through faithful friendship, and that made me feel good and made me feel productive about that um, relational advance, that, that gesture of vulnerability. Not just for me personally, but in our joint effort toward God's will in that. We're intentfully trying to build something here that God wants, that God has a vision for us here. And the crux of that relational issue is trust with one another. So, where are we at in this whole process? How willing are we to do that? How scared are we? to get a thank you instead of I love you. By nature, we want to reach out in acts of growth and love to those we already trust, you know, for affirmation, for comfort, for encouragement. That's good. That's good. But that's not the whole story, and it's not going to get us where God wants us. Those we feel safe and secure with are easy to reach out to and get affirmation from. But to grow the body in solidarity... We need to begin with trust. With trust that comes from a, a relationship that's not established. How does that work? How does that work? If we haven't grown trust, how do we build trust from trust? It has to start somewhere. Is trust a noun? Kinda. It's a intangible person, place, or thing can be a noun, sort of. Like, the feeling of trust. I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't really fly for me. 
if a feeling can be a noun, I think it's more of a grammar thing than a useful description. <clears throat> but trust is a verb, right? This is the same scenario as love, like the DC talk song, love is a verb, L-U-V, kind of corny. There's a good verse or two in there. But for believers, um, love is not really a noun. It's a verb. And the same should be applied to trust. It's an action word. Do we need to trust each other in order to build solidarity among us? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely, literally on every list you'll ever look up for how to build uh, any good relationship, whatever that is. Coworker relationship, friend relationship, family relationship, marriage relationship. Trust is on every single list. So what does scripture have to say about who we should trust? Psalm 56.3 says, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Who's he talking to? God. After Jesus predicts his betrayal and, and then Peter's denial and tells his apostles that their whole world is about to be uprooted, Jesus says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Psalm 118.8 says, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. Philippians 4, 18 to 19 is a, is a good last example here. And I looked at like a million scriptures, but here's four. Philippians 4, 18 to 19. <clears throat> at the moment, all I have, at the moment, I have all I need and more. I'm generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Aphrodite's. <clears throat> they are sweet-smelling sacrifices that are acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Paul here says that his brothers and sisters provided for him generously of their own free will with great intent and effort and sacrifice. Unity. Unity in that effort. Did that earn Paul's trust in them? Not according to what he's saying here. That's not where his trust came from, no. What it did is it affirmed Paul's trust in God. Paul then encourages the Philippians to follow his example and trust God. Trust God as he trusted God. That other people will provide for him. That other people will care for him. That other people will reciprocate. Paul was the one that gave these first efforts. He went to these different places, spent significant amount of time with people, and now it's their turn. Now they're reciprocating. And he says, this isn't building my trust in them, it's building my trust in God. It's affirming his trust there. There's a billion verses just like these about trusting God, and there's very little about trusting people. Very, very little. Let's go to Mark 9, verse 17 through uh, 24, it looks like. One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, Teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He's possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. And then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, You faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
So they brought the boy. When the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. I like how Jesus is calm in this, like, supernatural and crazy scenario. You know, he's like fact-finding. Like, hey, how long has this been going on? Just a part of the process, everyday work here. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or in the water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Jesus goes, what do you mean, if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. This is where we're at in all of these matters of trust. Where we're committed to a faithful belief rooted in Christ, but we can't seem to get the outworking right. You know? We all say we believe. We have a saving knowledge of Christ, but then we act in unbelief. Our trust is in Jesus Christ to hold us together. This trust creates an environment of trust by which the rest of his body can grow under the head of Christ. Just as quarreling brothers and sisters should be held together by their parents. Collectively, as a family, we don't see this too much anymore, but I just went to a funeral and you know, I'm like looking at pictures of people that got like 10, 12, 150 kids. Like, I don't even know, so many kids. But <clears throat> collectively, the parents hold the brothers and sisters together. And then also, the parents facilitate relationships and conflict resolution and growth between the individual brothers and sisters, between each two. It's the same thing here. Same thing here. We trust Christ. We trust his spirit to bind us together in love. Our trust is not in our own perfect love, because it ain't perfect. We all know that. It's going to have many times of failure, maybe even downright ugly times. Especially if you zoom in, you know, and look at the hearts of people. We have ugly times where we don't trust, where we have distrust, where we have bitterness, where we have resentment and division. And to call it hesitancy, you know, toward the, the good advances of one another would be a generous way to put it. But in the design of God, it's not our trust in each other that lets us trust each other. It's our trust in God. Paul highlights the forgiveness necessary in this process of dealing with the ugly. In Colossians 3, 11 to 14. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. Do you think harmony and unity was easy in that social environment? Jews and pagans, 
fancy rich people and dirt poor people, slaves and free. No, it was a total mess. Total mess. We hear our culture, even though it's going a weird direction, there's like, our culture is rooted on Christian consensus. Like, it's built on it. We all have essentially the same culture. This is a mess of culture. And I don't know if you call it racism, but um, yeah, whatever. Racism or the social version of that was what? Yeah, classism and all those all those isms that promote division. None of those are even looked down upon. Those are reasonable. Those are reasonable. That's how most of the world was. That's how most of the world even continues to be. Under Christ, we overcame that in unity. But in this, they're calling Paul is calling for a standard here that is a very difficult standard. There's all kinds of conflict and varying expectations, different feelings and presumptions, different total assumptions and and processes and standards for every aspect of life almost. And yet they, the believers, the new believers built a community of love and trust, even within that diversity, and were famous for it. We don't have anywhere near that cultural diversity, um, but what are our points of contention that need trust to sort out, that need all those attributes of grace, patience and mercy, and ultimately love? Are we afraid of being taken advantage of? Financially, emotionally, dare I say physically or sexually? This isn't to say we should be unwise, because there is wisdom literature that speaks a lot to these kinds of practical issues. Proverbs gives a lot of advice to be a trustworthy friend, you know, to be that friend that is trustworthy, and to make yourself vulnerable to only trustworthy friends or partners. But Solomon, who wrote most of that wisdom literature, wasn't generally speaking to the growth of family. Like, these are practical things of discernment, right? But the spirit of Christ in solidarity, in unity, and growing together as a beautiful body, that is our overarching narrative with these aspects of practicality as things to keep in mind along the way. So which narrative is going to win the day in your brain, in your heart? Hesitation based in self-preservation or love and openness through Christ, trusting in him and letting that filter down to our brothers and sisters, having an optimistic view of our relationship. Ultimately, our trust is in God's perfect love, which is it's just steamrolling toward our belief and understanding of our future. God's perfect love is a steamroller for unity among the believers here. It's hard to see sometimes, but that's what Scripture teaches. Right? I don't know if you guys have ever seen a steamroller, but it's that big like piece of equipment with the giant like roller on the front, and it goes like one mile an hour, but it crushes everything in its path, and it takes all that mess of gravel and stuff, whatever, 
slag. I don't know what kind of concretey stuff is there, but it takes all that and just smashes it down and makes it consistent and silky smooth to drive on, right? With asphalt. That's kind of what God's plan is. We know that we are going to be a path to Christ, and it will be beautiful and it will be smooth. It's not beautiful and smooth yet. It's the gravel road going up to the mountain with all the, you know, the switchbacks and all the like, like the washboard situation. Like, that's what we got a lot of times. But do we understand that that steamroller's coming? It's a, it's a surefire thing. When that steamroller comes over, it gets flattened. It gets paved to the designer's specification. Nothing can get in the way. That's how our progress and solidarity is. There should be no narrative of regression, ultimately. That should not be the narrative that wins the day for us. Because what is our end? Our end is total victory in Christ. Do you think standing at the gates of heaven in the presence of Almighty God and your Lord, Jesus Christ, in the presence of a host of angels and your brothers and sisters, will you have a shred of unbelief in your unity, insecurity in your family relationship with your brothers and sisters here? That's where we're headed. And we're called to act like we are on that trajectory with hope and confident expectation. Truth, it often balances on a razor's edge, right? Especially in Christianity. People swing the pendulum this way, people swing the pendulum that way. Revelation, truth that comes from outside of our own space and time, that holds the standard. And it's on a razor's edge. You can build trust with your friends here, and you should. And every command of Scripture that you fulfill builds trust. Those things are still valid. Those make it easier for, one of, for us to trust one another. But that weight of carrying the burden of trust, it does not belong to you. That burden of trust doesn't belong to you, doesn't belong to your brother or sister. How easily do you give up your passionate pursuit of connection with a brother or sister when things go sideways. How easily do we give up? And do we give up in our heart? It's one thing to set things on the back burner and be waiting, confidently waiting for the next time when we can do that. It's another thing to give it up in our heart, to essentially not really care that much anymore. That may be, you know, if that's... Uh, response, like <clears throat> to them not returning your love? Did they neglect you? Did they say thank you instead of I love you? Did you have a fight or a bad day or a project that you're working on went to suck town and there was just a lot of not awesome things that happened in that process? We don't have a right to claim that a relationship is broken in this church. We don't have a right to act like a relationship is broken in this church, even if we have a bad day. To say you can't trust a brother is a lie. Trust is a verb. And if that trust is rooted in God, then it is not something 
that has the power to break. If God is upholding the very idea of trust in this church, trust in our relationships can't be broken. And we shouldn't have that narrative. We can act in ways that, that repair the actions of the relationship, but the spirit of trust in that relationship, the willingness, the drive toward that trust, toward that unity and solidarity for the foundation of loving acts, those things are not supposed to be vulnerable. We are above that in Christ. If somebody complains that they would if somebody complains that they would be vulnerable or connect or partner with another believer if they could just trust them. Something's broken in that. If they could just trust them, they would be able to do this or that to better that relationship. Jesus would say, if you can, what are you talking about? Anything is possible if a person believes in my work. Jesus Christ himself bears the weight of our bond of trust. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what's right. By his wounds you're healed. He makes that sin dead, which causes your unbelief. Both your sin and your brother's. It has no power to control your relationship. In fact, let's go to a moment of truth for Jesus and his friends that really illustrates this. In Matthew 26, 31 through 46, we see this portion of the Passion narrative. This is right after leaving the Last Supper, going to the Mount of Olives, Jesus and his disciples. On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight all of you will desert me, for the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you. I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Think about how that worked out. And contemplate how Jesus' trust in them wavered. Or how it didn't. Jesus was following God. And though his friends were wavering, he did not. Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Then, in verse 36 here, continuing, <clears throat> Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, Sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. I want your will to be done, not mine. And then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me for even one hour? This is Peter who's, you know, vowing to die for him. Can't even stay awake. 
having a hard time, hard day. He said, keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Heard that. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. What a disappointing testimony to the solidarity of Jesus' best friends. You know, with all that training, all that discipling, all that mentorship from the Son of God, they couldn't stay awake to support him. But anyway, he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. Is Jesus bitter? Who hear bitterness? He makes allowance and says, Okay, go ahead and have your sleep. My trust is in God. Then he moves on to say, "Uh Oh, just kidding. We're out of time. Everybody up. Let's go. Go time for the whole group, whole posse. It's time. Did he see a disconnect? Even though his friends just totally did him dirty in the moment of need, in his life's moment of need? He didn't even break solidarity for a minute. Said, all right, crew, let's go. And they continued to, be, to betray Jesus that night. But Jesus did not betray their friendship. Why not? Let's take a look at Jesus 10. <laughs> Jesus 10. John, the book of Jesus. <laughs> the gospel according to John, chapter 10. Verse 28 and 29. Jesus is speaking about us, his sheep. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me for my father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my father's hand. In Christ's mind, his unity with his disciples has nothing to do with their performance, their loyalty, his specific relationship to them. It's simply that God gave them to him. God put them together and that's it. Period. His trust is in God and it is unwavering and therefore his trust in his fellowship is unwavering as well. One step down the logical line, the Father has given each of your brothers and sisters to this body and no one can snatch them away. We are on a trajectory of God's will we're on a trajectory of permanent investment. And with 2020 hindsight, how did Jesus' disloyal friends turn out? Well, they built the church. They followed God faithfully and truly and long-term. They built the church you could say they're responsible for building this church. 
ABF is here because of their work. They all lived and died for Christ. They all matured to be pillars of the first century church that became world famous and eternally famous. Each brother and sister among you has an eternal future in relationship with you, in relationship to the church. The steamroller is moving, and the Holy Spirit, he's at the wheel. So let's allow trust and grace to govern our love. Do we have a confident hope in our salvation? Well, what about a confident hope in the salvation of every relationship here? Even on bad moments, bad days, where we're kind of at our wit's end, where we feel disappointed or unfruitful. Do we have a confident hope in the salvation of every relationship here? Or are we content with a mere salvage operation, you know, in our spare time? And let's not forget to be in solidarity in our pursuit of solidarity. Some Inception stuff here. Be in solidarity in our pursuit of solidarity. We are in this process together. It's not just on you to do right by all this. We should be helping one another in all this. Help and encourage one another to trust. Interceding for one another in relationship to counsel one another. The reality is that we can't keep adding to our inner circle of friends either. You know, Say we have, we're capable of five best friends in our finiteness. And being able to maintain those relationships at the highest level. You can't just keep adding and adding and adding, you know, bestest of best friends. It just doesn't work that way. But what can we do? We can help each other establish and perfect our circles of friendship. To counsel each other to have these healthy circles. And in that process... A church body like this should have overlapping circles, right? So, like my five best friends might include two of Sam's best friends, you know, and his five best friends might include three of Jasmine's best friends. That's what we want. So this body is mature and interconnected and strong. I don't have the scripture, but, you know, the triple braided cord situation is not easily broken. That's how we want to be, and on that scale of our friendship. Might be like a, you know, like the Spartan phalanx situation where they have all their shields overlapping, <clears throat> maybe like the scales of a dragon or something hardcore. But in any case, that's what we're going for in this body. And all these things are foundational at the level of trust. We have to be willing to step out on a limb to trust one another in order to make these connections and build up these relationships that aren't really established. And the more new people that come into this body, the more we're going to run into that, of these relationships that are insecure on paper. But if you've ever dealt with you know, corporations or government or whatever, you can't trust the paperwork. But God keeps accurate records in heaven. And that's what we trust. We trust him.
when we have projects, when we have these things that we're working together on and we have these disconnections and conflicts and um, separations because of time, whatever, when different schedules separate. Are we going to let inconvenience or insecurity or whatever allow us to set aside this priority of solidarity between us? Yeah, insecurity does not need to rule our day. And we should reach out to one another before, before any proof has been given that that relationship is trustworthy. That's God's pattern for us, right? He reached out to us, did right by us while we were yet sinners, while we hated him. Was willing to die for that. There's no greater love than someone laying down their life for their friends. How much more can we reach out or reciprocate based on the trust that we have in God for who he has brought into our circle, into our responsibility, our purview, for creating a body of Christ that does right by the head of it. Let's ask some questions and go discuss. How hesitant are you to trust one another with the initiative or in reciprocating in returning that? How hesitant are you to trust one another? Number two, how do you respond to broken trust, quote-unquote? How do you respond to broken trust? And number three, how does God's perspective on us inform your current and future outlook on messy relationships? How does God's perspective on us inform your current and future outlook on messy relationships? You know, in other words, how do you follow God's pattern? How are you a disciple of Christ in navigating these messy relationships and building them with trust? Okay, let's go discuss.